I am so excited about today because today is, uh, I feel like the Lord gave me this message, or not gave me the message, but gave me this, um, what we're learning today, I'd say about a year and a half ago, um, never really could put legs to what the Lord was showing me. And over this last week, and it was just like, Lord was just like here and here and here and here and here. And I was like, yes, let's go. I'm excited. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be hanging out in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, and primarily Genesis 3, but we're going to start in Genesis 2 and work our way in Genesis 3. Because this is where having chapters and verses kind of fails us because we're looking at one seamless story, but the chapters cut it off as if it were a whole nother story. But we're going to ignore that today, okay? All right. This past Monday, while I was at work, I began to ask the Lord what he wanted me to share today. The Lord quickly responded and said, you were going to speak on me being enough. Before I even had a chance to say what I was thinking, which was I had spoken this multiple times before, Yahweh said, this is what you will always have on your lips. I'm using you as the prototype of what it looks like to be completely and totally satisfied in me and me alone. So that being said, I have two goals today. The first goal is to exemplify in this teaching, both with my words and my heart, that Yahweh and Yahweh alone is enough to satisfy. The second goal is to educate us on a text that I believe has been severely misread and misapplied. The text that I'm speaking of is Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, which is the story of the garden. In the West, we have made this story about a cruel God who put mankind in a sick game of don't you dare, and when mankind lost this game, God cursed everyone to carry an inherited natural sin nature. My prayer is that as we discuss this, we see that that is not at all what this text is trying to convey, both to us and the Israelites when this was written. This story is not about a cruel and sadistic deity. It's about a gracious and loving God showing nothing but tender care for his kids and mercy when they choose to operate outside of their pre-designed intention. Lord, thank you so much this morning for the presence that is already here. Lord, I feel it so strongly this morning. It is heavy in this place. And Lord, I thank you that you're here And I pray, Lord, that you allow me to speak the words that you spoke to me. Let me simply be a mouthpiece. Don't let anything I say today just be something that I came up with on my own. But rather, I stand aside and I say, Lord, you speak to us today. May I just be an instrument for what you want to say. Lord, I pray that anything that we came in here carrying when it comes to how we see you and how we see ourselves, I pray that that be set aside and allow the word of God to tell us who we really are and who you really are. We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to show us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, before we dive into our text, I want to preface a lot because I want to make sure that we have the right picture before we dive in. Because if we don't, we're going to read this and miss the whole point of what's being said. So, it's no doubt that we in the West need to learn to ask better questions than we do when reading the Bible. We always approach the text carrying our Western context and perspective when the Bible is written to an Eastern audience with Eastern perspectives. Now, if you were here, I taught a a message on Noah, and we went through quite a bit of different things as to the difference between East and West. And I'm actually going to go over those again today, but a little bit more in depth because I think that it's very important that we understand this because there's a huge difference. So to quote Marty Solomon, who is by far my favorite uh, podcast part, what's the word part podcast, content creator, 
Is that the right word? Content creator? Is that the modern term now? Anyways, he, he teaches the Bible and he is very, very wise. So I'm going to quote him. Rich images and stories fill the pages of our Bible, but they come from a time and culture very different from our own. The writers of the Bible are Hebrew or Eastern, and they are writing to Eastern audiences. Most Christians in our culture are Greek or Western, who think about the world in a much different way than the people of the Bible. As a result, much of the Bible is lost in our culture and lost even more as we try to explain it through a Western lens. If we, try, if we learn to think Hebrew or think Eastern, the text will truly begin to come alive. Now, a parable or a picture or a metaphor to kind of help you put this together is picture yourself in front of a, like an, let's just say an office space. And you know how the office doors have that little tiny window that's like carved out of it? Picture yourself looking through that from one angle. You see the desk, you see the table or the, uh, the computer, you see the chairs, you see like a whiteboard, you may see a plant over here, and you're standing in front of it and you memorize everything about this side of the room. And then suddenly you notice on the other side that there's a window and you walk around to the other side and you look through the other side and suddenly you begin to see things you didn't see before. You see that, oh, above the door I was looking through was a clock and over in this corner that I couldn't even see was another plant. And oh my gosh, there was another little painting here. Or There's so much that you see from the opposite side. The problem is, putting this back into the Bible's context, is we go to the Bible and we look at it and we're so focused on one side and we refuse to go around and see what else could be on the other side. And we're so in love with what we see on our side that anybody that talks from the other side, like, no, this is the clock above the door. No, there's not. I don't see a clock above the door. Yes, I'm looking right at it. It's right there. And that's, that's exactly the argument we get in when we talk to people that are coming from another perspective, particularly the Eastern perspective, because we're so focused on where we are. That being said, Western perspectives are not evil in nature. In fact, they can be helpful in many different ways. However, we need to understand the audience and the authors of the books that we hold in such high esteem. It would be nonsense to try and force our perspective and context into a book about a totally different perspective and context. The Bible was and is meant to be studied by first understanding its original message to its original audience. Then we ask how that message can be applied to our life. So instead of us going to the Bible and say, this is what I get out of it, and then later going back saying, oh, that's what the Israelites got out of it, but this is what I got out of it. That's the wrong way to do it. You need to go to the Bible, see what the message was to Israel or whoever the audience was, and be like, how can I apply that principle to my life? That's how we properly understand the Bible. All right? Everyone tracking with me? We good? Awesome. So I want to give some examples of some differences that we have between Eastern and Western, which, again, this is a review for those who were here when I spoke on Noah, but let's dive into it. Um, how do we express truth? In the Western perspective, we express truth through word ideas and definitions by using things such as outlines, lists, and bullet points. For example, here are the three points as to why we should experience rest with God. In the Eastern perspective, they express truth through word pictures and story or narrative by using things such as poetry, imagery, and symbolism. For example, ah, Let's tell a story about rest. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think about that for a while. What do we think about when we think of numbers? This is a fun one for me personally because I, I think this is fun to practice. And Angela actually messaged me recently about it. 
In the Western perspective, we look at numbers as quantity. The ark was this long and this wide. Let's make a diagram to show what it would have looked like. Let's create a museum so people can see the actual size and diameters and measurements of the ark, which is okay. But in the Eastern perspective, numbers mean quality and are symbolic for something. So, for example, the ark was 300 cubics long. 300 is an emphatic use of the meaning of the number three, which is the number of divine perfection. So essentially, they would have read this as, your boat should be divinely perfect from front to back. You see the difference? It's just a different perspective. Neither one of them are wrong. It's just that we're reading an Eastern book, so we have to see it through their lens. What is the focus of life? In the Western mind, it's individual life. For example, how can I apply such and such to my life? Or what can I do in this life to make sure that I am making an impact on my so-and-so? From the Eastern perspective, it's about community, life, or lives. For example, how can we apply such and such to our lives? Or how can we as a people make sure that we have an impact on our community? It's very much we-driven. So everywhere where you see, like I mean, it's obvious when you read the text, but it's not so much about how can I grow from this? How can I benefit? This is about me and me alone. It's like, how can we as a people, this is written to Israel, not written to one individual person. Does that make sense? All right, here we go. What about eternal life? This one usually offends a few people, but it's okay. In the Western perspective, we see eternal life as the never-ending time that we are alive with God. Usually it's followed by talks of heaven and hell, like eternal life. We die, eternal life. For the Easterner, it is the quality of life in this world here and now. There is little to no mention of the afterlife, as that is not much of a concern. So it's more like I am living eternally here and now in my context. I'm not living forever, but I'm, I mean, that too, but I'm living eternally joyful in God, eternally loving. It's it's all eternal qualities of life now. Does that make sense? All right, let's keep going. God's existence, for the Western perspective, we start with a place of unbelief, and generally we look for proof of the existence of a God. In the Eastern perspective, it it assumes the existence of a God. The proving of God is more to show them who the true God is and how he relates to the world. How do we describe God? From a Western perspective, we focus on the nature of God's being by asking questions of who and what is God. From the Eastern perspective, it's how does God relate to us and his creation. Got a few more of these. I promise we're going somewhere with this. What about faith? For the Western, faith is intellectual. We discuss things such as creeds, doctrines, belief statements while using things like proof text, which means that you pick like one individual verse to support our belief. From the Eastern perspective, faith is relational. We discuss things such as experience of and with God while making no attempt to rationalize because they are okay with not having an infinite God confided in a box of rationalization. That's convicting for me. What about ultimate truth? We have like two more, two more of these, I promise. Ultimate truth, Western perspective. Ultimate truth is rational and scientific. The focus is scripture on how something was done. Belief comes as one thinks through validation. From the Eastern perspective, Truth is religious and experiential. The focus in scripture is on what was done and who did it. That belief comes from experience. Last one, 
What is the nature of truth? In the Western perspective, truth is static and unchanging. It is what it is, and there's nothing you can do about it. From the Eastern perspective, truth is unfolding. The truth is the beginning, but the fullness of it has yet to be discovered. So things are gradually becoming more true instead of here is absolute truth, the end. It's like here's the truth, and we're going to build on that truth to discover really how true this is. Does that make sense? As you can tell, there are vast, vast differences in perspective. There is no reason to feel convicted or bad about the fact that we think differently. However, now that we understand that there are real differences and that the Bible leans strongly towards the perspective different from our own, we are responsible for reading and learning the text through that lens so that we may get the true meaning of what Yahweh is trying to say. Now, why am I stressing all of this? Why am I so focused on this East and West thing? Because I want us to see that what we are studying today is not just a history lesson. We are looking at a narrative that's meant to teach us a practical lesson, not give us a historical account of what happened to mankind. Sometimes that means exaggerating some of the details, and sometimes that means telling a story that may not be entirely historic in its detail. An example of this is what we talked about just now in Genesis 1. If the question that you were asking when approaching Genesis 1 is, did God create the universe in six 24-hour days, or was it six million years, then you totally missed the point of what Genesis 1 was about. The question that we should be asking in this example is, what can I learn and apply for what I, from what I just read, regardless of its historicity? So it could be, it very well could have been how, like, literally that's exactly what it was, but that's not the point of why we're reading it. That's what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? Everybody follow me? I'm not saying that the history is wrong. I'm saying that if we're focused only on the history, we miss the greater part of the narrative. So today, let's destroy the notion that the Bible is just a book on history or some kind of scientific lab report. The moment that you begin to ask questions that produce tangible fruit in your life is the moment that you begin to see this book for what it really is. All right, now, I want to start before we go to Genesis 2 by starting in Genesis 1. I'm not going to go verse by verse. I just want to give you the cliff notes of how we got to where we are because we have to start in Genesis 1 because if we start in Genesis 2 and 3, we begin to see it incorrectly from the start. So in Genesis 1, God is the creator and sustainer of all things. That God can be trusted. Not only can he be trusted, but the story that he is telling can be trusted. We see in this chapter in Genesis 1 into the beginning of Genesis 2 that, um, that God teaches us a valuable lesson on rest. Different sermon for a different day, but he teaches us a valuable lesson on rest. That not only can God create, but God knows when to stop creating and let creation be. So Josh actually taught on this one time. It's like the, the example of, let's say that you have, like Lauren can attest this too, that you have a beautiful painting that you finished every detail on. At some point when you're finishing that painting, you have to, you mean, there's, there's going to be a point where you're like, if I do one more thing to this painting, it's going to be too much, right? If I do one more thing, it'll be way too much detail. If I do one more thing, it'll ruin this photo. And that's what, or this, um, this painting. And that's what we see in Genesis 1, is God say, this is how I wanted it. If I do one more thing to this, I, I, I got to leave it like it is and let it be. Which is a beautiful thing, that God knows when to say, or when to stop creating. We also see here that mankind has been made uniquely by God and in his image and likeness. That is very, very important for what we're about to go into. 
This is where the story has to start. If we start at the fall of man, we will begin to form ideas of inherited sin and that God was cruel in creating us in a way that would cause us to fall. If you start in Genesis 1, you see that God created a good creation with good plans for this good creation. All right, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start, I was going to start in verse 7, but I think we're going to start in verse 8. Actually, you know what? Let's start in verse 7 to kind of back up that idea. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put man, the man he had formed. The Lord God had made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold, is, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gehon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, the cool thing about this is I, I honestly, I had been, either I misread this or I had been taught something. I don't really know. But I had always pictured in my head four rivers that met into the garden. But what it actually was is four rivers met into one river that went into the garden. Now, why is that significant that it was one river that spread into four? Let's look at it from a practical standpoint. What does the story, or what does the garden in the story represent? It represents the place where God and man dwell together in communion. It's the place where mankind walks with God in the cool of the day. Maybe for you, your garden is riding in your car on the way to work, talking with God. That's a big one for me. Maybe for you, your garden is in the dining room floor where you weep in his presence daily. All of us have a garden of some sort where God has placed us and dwelled with us. From this garden should flow a river that breaks into every part of yours and everyone else's life. This is the most effective way to shine your light of Yahweh into the world. A lot of us have been taught growing up that the gospel is only effective when it's preached to anyone and everyone that we come in contact with, or to use the garden analogy, we've been taught to create many rivers that flow out into the world. The problem with this is that the rivers that you create in this mindset don't flow into the river of the garden, but rather into the river of striving, which has no home in the garden. Should have got an amen there. Could it be that the lesson we see here in the very beginning of this story is that our light and our reach should only flow out of the river of devotion? I think so. One river into four. It's not just a history lesson. Let's keep going. Picking up in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. I want to pause for a second and address where our minds immediately go when we hear this command. I believe that we put way too much emphasis on the negative part of God's command here for Adam. 
What we should instead, I'm sorry, what we should see instead of a cruel and selfish God holding something back from his kid is the boundless grace and love in the fact that God gave Adam an entire garden to enjoy. He had an open sanctuary where he could spend eternity with Yahweh. So a lot of, we focus so much on God saying, don't eat of this tree, but we miss the fact that he put him in a beautiful, boundless garden. You can eat of any tree you want, just not this one. That's important because if we see this only the negative, then we miss the beautiful part of what was, that, what was in the garden to begin with. Now, how do we do this in our own lives? We know that God has big plans for us, and we have our passions and our desires for where we want to be one day, and all we wonder in the seasons and context of where we are now is why does God have me here, and why does God hold me back from where I'm supposed to ultimately be? How many have heard that before? How many have said that before? I've said that before. Side note, before I go any further, um, I despise the idea of saying, um, I'm waiting for God to take me where I'm going to ultimately be. I don't like that idea because it implies that what you have now is not enough. That what I have with God now isn't enough. That I have to be somewhere else for that to be my ultimate destiny. Like we're at our ultimate destiny now with God. The rest of our life, everything that adds on to that is just a bonus. But our ultimate destiny is being with him and enjoying him every day. Wouldn't life be far more enjoyable if the question that we asked ourselves daily was what does God have for me today, where I am, and how can I enjoy him today more than I did yesterday? Now, I am guilty of this myself. Uh, again, I, I work currently right now at CPI Security. So it's off of Clemson Road. If you guys drive through any neighborhood, you probably see the stop signs that have CPI Security or warning, or you'll see the light that sometimes whistles at, or not light, but the uh, camera will whistle at you if you walk by it sometimes. Um, but I often look ahead because for me, like, I've always wanted to be in full-time ministry. If you've known me for a long time, you know that, like, doing this and being a part of what's happening, like, full-time, like, that's my dream. But I often look ahead at where I ought to be instead of recognizing the beauty of where I am now. Like, 75% of my workday right now, I get to be alone in a warehouse, listen to worship, podcast, etc., and just enjoy the Lord while I work. In that, Yahweh has wrecked me in ways that I would have never thought possible and never would have experienced had I been in ministry, by the way. And yet, I still sometimes find myself looking at what's next. That's the poison of Hellenism. So if you've heard Josh talk on Hellenism, is, is we put ourselves at the center of the story instead of God. How can I grow? How can I go to the next place? How can I do this? How can I do that? When that's totally the opposite of what God wants for us. It's so easy to take for granted the beauty of things that you have now when you are focused on what's next. We'll cover this more later, I promise, but uh, we have everything we need now and more. Keep that in the forefront of your mind because that's the, the mantra of what we're talking about. While we are on this topic of the tree, let's think about this for a second because it's the question we always wonder when reading this, and I know, I know it is because this is what I do. Why did God place this tree in the garden? How many, how many that's where your mind goes? Is why did God place a tree that he, like, why didn't God just give him a whole bunch of trees that he could eat of and nothing else? I don't want to resolve this until later. We are going to resolve it, I promise, but I don't want to resolve it until later. But let's think about it for a second so it's on your mind. Why didn't God put mankind in a garden that only had trees that he could eat of? What's the point of putting a tree that could hinder their walk with the Lord in this garden? 
Was it that they were just predestined to fall and that God rigged the system against them? Or could there be a lesson into why this tree is present in the story? Think about that. Let that be in your mind. It's going to be, you're going to think about it. Some of you are going to be distracted the whole rest until I've resolved that answer. Please don't, please don't, because I need to set it up. All right, let's keep reading. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them, thank you, Jesus. He brought them to, to the man. Um, okay, I got, I got lost, I'm sorry. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave all the names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. Now, don't let yourself miss the details here. This is where chapters in the, and verses in our Bible really mess us up. If chapters two and three were combined and you didn't know when the new chapter started, you would see that this is a huge detail in the entire story of the garden. Like this detail right here, we totally miss when starting in Genesis 3. Uh, um, We have here a God that says that mankind is not meant to be alone. So what does God do first? He creates land animals and the birds of the air. Or in other words, God creates beasts. God brings these beasts to Adam, and no suitable helper was found. Why is this important? This is a really big point. If you have to write this down, write this down. God is showing Adam that as an image bearer of God, he will never find a suitable helper in a beast. Why? Because he himself is not a beast. Write that down. He himself is not a beast because we're, this is, I'm telling you, this is very, very, very important. Turn to your neighbor and say, Adam is not a beast. Do it, turn to your other neighbor and say, I, I liked you a little bit less, but Adam's not a beast. <laughs> Even Will did it. And that's awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, let's pick it up in, I think I missed part of verse 20. Let me, um, I I did miss part of it, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Verse 21, I'm reading, okay, let's make sure I'm not going too far here. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken, which rib is not the best translation in the world. The best translation would be side, or out of a, a out of the out of the side of Adam, or out of the half of Adam. It's really hard to, to translate that to English. Uh, the Hebrew word it, it makes a little bit more sense, but it's out of the side of Adam, which your rib is on your side, sure. But anyways, food for thought. He had taken out of the man, uh, and he brought her to him. The man said, "This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or isha." for she was taken out of man. In Hebrew, Adam names this human that came from himself Isha or Ishasha, which we translate as woman. But using the context and the understanding of the Hebrew word here, a better way to translate this is simply from myself or even from my very own flesh. That's why he says uh, bone from my bone, flesh of my flesh. Isha means from me because the name man or male in Hebrew is Ish. You have Ish and Isha. Okay? That's important as well. We're going to come back to that. He names her from myself. Verse 24. That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become 
one flesh. I'm going to go ahead and pause again. I'm going to be pausing a lot, so we're going to eventually get to the point, I promise. But I want to make sure we're getting every bit of this. This is significant for obvious reasons. Oftentimes, as we've mentioned here a few times, we, we get what's called the lullaby effect when particularly quoting scriptures like this. But I think, or I'm sorry, but think about this just for a moment. God took part of Adam and created another. This part that God took from Adam can't simply be grown back. The only way for Adam to get this back is to become one with quite literally his other half. Please just don't hear this and think of physical intimacy. I know there's some kids in the room. Don't think of this and think of that because it's so much bigger than that. As any married couple can attest, without their other half, they are missing not just a reproductive mate, but they are missing part of themselves. The qualities of one complete the qualities of the other. The coming together of man and woman is the peak in God's creation. God created a mankind that thrives in community and union with one another, just as God himself thrives in community and union in Father, Son, and Spirit. We all okay? We still awake? We following? We have God. The God of perfect community creates mankind and says, I want to create mankind to experience the community that we experience. So he created from himself someone that he would not be complete without. Which with God, if part of God was taken out, if the son was taken out or the father was taken out, like God would not be complete. All right, we good? We good? All right. Uh, all right, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We, I can't read this now without thinking of what we saw this morning. We found, I'm not trying to get us off track. Please just don't go too far with me here. We got here and we found a pair of whitey tidies out, out front and so when I think of naked and felt no shame, I'm thinking whoever left their underwear out there because they clearly have no shame of their nakedness. Oh, sorry. That image, take that image out of your head. We're going to keep moving. I'm so sorry. I, I just, I speak my mind. So, all right. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Now we're going to hang out here for a minute, okay? A better translation of wild animal here would be beast. Like if you look at the, the word that's in Hebrew, the word is simply beast. The crafty beast, a cunning beast. Now, I want you to say something because I want this to become the center of what we're talking about. Everyone say, the serpent is a beast. The serpent is a beast. One more time. The serpent is a beast. All right. Now, right off the bat, what are the obvious questions that we have here? Now, don't overthink this. What do we have? To, what's the first question that comes to our mind about this serpent? Why is he talking? We have a talking snake here. Is that not, like, we read this a thousand times, and we, do we ever stop and say, man, there's a talking snake here? Now, how is this snake talking? Not saying that this is a necessarily a, huge, a super huge detail, but most, if not all, in the West immediately say, oh, that's Satan, that's the devil. And that very well could be the case. Maybe it is. However, to just assume that and move on would miss a very, very big point in my opinion. What did we say the serpent was? A beast, and a cunning one at that. 
I ask that we remove, just for the remainder of what we're talking about today, I ask that we remove the whole idea for a moment of Satan being a snake for a bit and just look at the fact that it's a beast. If by the end of this, you're still landing on the fact that it's Satan, that's totally fine. We can still have fun and eat lunch together. That's totally fine. I just think that if we, if we stop at, oh, the, the snake was Satan, that's why he's talking, then I think we miss a really big point, okay? So let's just take that out of our mind just for the remainder of this. Follow me, and if you don't like it, that, that's fine. But by the way, the beast talking, you would think, would cause most in the West to realize that the Bible could possibly be trying to teach us a lesson through narrative more than just giving us a historical documentary. Just saying. Like the fact that we have a talking snake, like you would think people would pause and be like, maybe we're not, maybe there's a bigger picture here than, oh, this is just the history of when mankind fell into sin. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, I digress. Now, let's look at the statement that the serpent made. We in the West typically teach and put emphasis the beast in what I believe the wrong place. We say, hear the emphasis in what I'm saying, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In the East, that's not where the emphasis is. In the East, the emphasis is, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what's the difference? The first questions the command. The second questions the character of the one who said it. Huge difference. Here's a practical example. Let's say that we finish the service and Julia calls me and says, Josh said the entire service was just terrible, completely and totally awful. If I respond using the Western emphasis, I would say, did Josh say the service was awful? So as to question the statement more than Josh himself. But in the Eastern emphasis, I would say something like this. Did Josh really say that it was awful? Did he really say that? Because that's not true at all. Because I know that he wouldn't say that. Because that's not even true. That's not his character to say something like that. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference? So what, what this initial question is trying to convey is that the beast is attempting to get Eve to think like the beast and questioning the character of the one giving the command more than the specifics of the command itself. All right, let's keep reading. Where did I pick up? Um... Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. I could spend a lot of time there, but I'm going to keep going. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This next part is huge, so please, please, please pay attention here. We have talked about here frequently, very frequently at Dream, how there is one big obvious flaw in what the beast is saying to Eve, and that is the fact that the beast is saying that eating from this tree will make Eve like God, even though, as we know, Eve is already like God, just as Adam is. Amen? We've got that, and I feel we understand it. I want to take this verse and focus on the tagline at the end of the statement, knowing good and evil. Why is this tagline significant? Let's read it again. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You could totally leave out that last part and the point that we talk about here frequently would still apply. But maybe the author is teaching us something a little bit deeper than that. Could it be 
that the beast in this story is saying that all God has given you is great, but it's not enough. Could it be that the beast is trying to convince Eve that she needs this one thing to make her fully like God? I believe that that is the real temptation of Eve in this story. It's not simply that she's never eaten this fruit before and that she that she wants to try something she's never had before. I believe the biggest temptation here is that she questions the fact that what she presently has is enough. Well, is God holding out on me? Is there something more that I need outside of what I have in him now? Is what I have enough? Does this one tree that God told me not to eat of, is that one thing I need to be even more like God or do I have enough now and trust that God's command was for my good? Again, how true is this in our own lives? We have everything we need, yet we live in a world that's trying to convince us that we need more and more and that we have, and what we have right now is not enough. We say things like never settle or never be satisfied or, this is a kind of an inside joke, the best is yet to come. What's wrong with what we have now? Is what we have now enough? Is him being present with you where you are enough? I mean, really think about it. Is he enough right here, right now? Or are you thinking of ways that you could get just one more thing and then God will be enough? One more thing and I'll be satisfied. Or are you completely and totally satisfied right now with where you are with God? Think about that. Let's keep reading. Let me move this out of the way. We're in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, which, by the way, the Bible did not describe the tree as having or gaining any wisdom. That's an added thing that Eve had in her mind. She took some of it and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, I want to stick on verse 7 just for a second. Remember what we saw at the end of chapter 2, or also with the homeless man outside. They were both naked and felt no shame. I'm assuming it's a man. I really hope it was a man. Anyways, I'm sorry. Let me get back on point. Back on point. Focus in. That's right. Now that they have given in and eaten of this tree, they are now ashamed. I believe that our English translations fail us here in understanding this context. I don't believe that Adam and Eve had no clue that they weren't wearing clothes. I, th I think they kind of got that, that they weren't wearing anything other than they were just themselves. That's not the point of what the author is trying to make. The point is, is that they had no problem being exposed because they weren't ashamed of who they really were. I'm going to read that again because somebody didn't get it. The point is that they had no problem being exposed because they weren't ashamed of who they really were. Amen. Now that they have done something wrong, they feel shame and don't want to leave themselves exposed to God, each other, or themselves. Again, we have to see the bigger picture of this story. It's not a history lesson. It's a life lesson. We do this very same thing. When things are going super great in our lives, we are so open, like, God, thank you. Like, I give you all of myself. I surrender everything. I lay it all down, and it's easy. But when you do something wrong, when you mess up, or when you know you've hurt someone or whatever, how often do we try to cover ourselves up and say, 
hey, God, like, thanks, but, like, I don't want you to see all of this. Or even when you go to church, that's why, honestly, I believe that's why a lot of people avoid coming to church is they feel that when they come to church and try to expose themselves, that it's going to be used against them. And it probably will be in our current church right now. I mean, not this church, but, like, the church. That's just the problem that's out there. But that's a big problem, and we face it too. I do the same thing. When I mess up and do something wrong, I tend to hide behind something to try and cover it up. And that's the point of what's being said here in verse 7. It's not them like, oh my gosh, like I have no clothes on. I need to put clothes on. Like that would totally miss the point. The point is, is I was exposed and okay and not ashamed. Now I've done something wrong. Now I've got to cover myself up. Good? All right, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Wouldn't that be cool to hear God walking in the cool of the day? That's, that'd be so cool. Like wonder what his footsteps sounded like. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Well, looks like God lost Adam in this garden. Adam hid himself and outsmarted God. Isn't that, isn't that what comes to our mind when we read it sometimes? It's like, man, like you would think a God of infinite knowledge and wisdom would know exactly where Adam is. But it's like, man, God lost Adam. Where, where Adam. Adam, where are you? You know, like how you're like hide and seek. But that's not at all what, what's being said here. So the best, the best example I can give of this, um, it's much easier with a prop. So I'm going to use this marker. If I place this marker, or let's say I, I place this marker down, and I, I just, I had no idea that I placed it here. I just put it here, and I forgot that I placed it here. I left for a week and came back, and I was like looking, like, where's my marker? I can't seem to find, I don't remember where I placed it. The other side of it, which is what's saying here, is I put the marker here, and I show back up to where the marker was, and the marker's not there anymore. Like, I know it's supposed to be here. I put it here. Where is it? Does that make more sense? Okay. So what God is saying here is not necessarily, man, Adam, I lost you. I can't find you. But rather, he was calling out to Adam that he was not where he was supposed to be. Where is he supposed to be? Naked and no shame. Where is he now? Covered up and full of shame. Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So that just proves my point. Thank you, Bible. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Or to use the same context of what we were saying, who told you naked was, was a bad thing? Now, verse 12, uh, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. <laughs> I want to pause for a moment and reflect on this because we do not, or we, we, because do we not do this very same thing? Are we not so quick to point the finger at others when we do something wrong to try and get out of something? I know that I do it. I know I do it. I blame my shortcomings on former churches that I was a part of on people I work with, sometimes people in my family, or even God. I'm so quick to shift the blame elsewhere besides myself. If we aren't careful, we will look at this and we will see the speck in Adam's eye while ignoring the log in our own. We will read this and we're like, man, how could Adam blame his wife? Like, what a, man, what a tool, you know? But the fact is, is we do this exact same thing. I mean, just look at America right now. That's, that's such a cliche phrase. Look at America now. 
It's never our own fault. You have the left blaming the right for all the problems and vice versa. In the church, you have pastors who shift blame all over the place. Even us as individuals have a habit of shifting blame so we don't see ourselves in trouble for something that we are clearly responsible for. All right, let's read verse 13, and we're going to pause again. We're going to, I'm telling you, we've we got a lot of goodies here. Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Eve is actually showing great wisdom here. Follow me for a second. Many pastors make the joke here that Eve is saying, the devil made me do it. Have you ever heard sermons like that where it's like, oh, the devil made me do it? That's not what she's doing. Eve is saying here that the beast's voice became more prominent to me than that of yours. In other words, she is saying, I gave in to the persuasion of a beast when I should have listened to my image bearer helper and my God. So when we see that there was no suitable helper found in a beast, but rather in the image bearer that was made from the other image bearer, we see an example of this here. Eve consulted a beast when there was no suitable helper found among the beast. I promise we're going to come back to that, but please, please, please hold on to that. This whole idea of the beast, please, please, please hold on to that. All right. Verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals or all beasts. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now there is actually a midrush that says in this story that the beast was actually trying to assume the role of Adam and convince Eve to procreate with him instead. Now, obviously, this is like Midrush is, is more a Jewish commentary. Uh, it's not necessarily like, in, like it's not scripture, inerrant scripture. It's not, the, it's uh, a commentary, but just follow me for a second. Some Jewish scholars have said this is why enmity was put between the woman and the beast. God wasn't going to let image bearers procreate with beasts. So it's more of a symbolic look, not the idea of like he's going to actually become a father of children. It's like beast and image bearer are not going to procreate, so I'm going to put enmity between them. Does that make sense? Also, we tend to look at the last part of this verse as Jesus, and sure, it very much can be applied that way, yes and amen. But I think the main point of it, though, is that the offspring of the image bearer will ultimately crush the head of the beast. In other words, though there may be many battles, we win. All right, we good? All right, let's pick it up in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. You guys can thank Eve for that. With painful labor, you will give, I'm sorry, I, I had to say it. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife, and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since, it, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. 
Listen to this next verse. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. This is perhaps the saddest part of the entire story, in my opinion, or one of. If you read this story carefully, you will see that Adam named his helper twice. First, he called her flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, or simply put, from myself. Now he names her mother. Adam saw Eve no longer for who she was, but for what she could produce. Let that sink in for a second. I mean, really let that sink in. Because this is what humanity, including Christians, has resorted to. We look to people all around us and we see everything that they could do to progress ourselves and what we want to do. We don't see people for who they truly are anymore. This mentality has bled even into the church. I've been a part of multiple churches in my life, and I can say with confidence through personal experience that this is a problem, both for big and small churches. This isn't just a mega church thing. This is a church church thing. We find out what someone is good at. We plug them in so that they can do the things that we don't even want to do. And then we say, do, we say or do whatever we can to keep them producing. Then the moment that that person leaves, we move on to whoever else can produce for us. Humanity needs a breakthrough from this mentality, especially the church. It was never God's intention for mankind to exploit the natural gifts of image bearers to further progress our own empires. Rather, he wants us to use our gifts to help each other and to work together to put the world back together. Amen. So again, I ask us to pause for this moment. If this describes where you all are today, even if it's a little bit, then that needs to be crucified today. It is unbelievably destructive to the image bearer. Let me tell you this with confidence. There will be none of that here at this church. I can say that with confidence. As a family, we will not let this mentality rob us from what the Lord is doing here. You will not be used or abused here. This is why we don't go begging people to serve. We want to see people here live out their pre-designed intention more than we want to see them help us get things done that we don't want to do. That's the truth. We're, we're not here to say, oh, you play music. Oh, let's put you up there. It's like, hey, like, I care about you as an individual. You, you feel like the Lord's calling you to play music? You have the gifting for it? Sure, we'll throw you up there. It's not like we're like, oh, please come up here and play because we desperately need somebody. And then when they don't come, it's like, well, I guess they're gone. You see the difference? Like, it's more about the person, not about their production. And that's where we see, that's what I believe the ultimate fall here, if you want to call it a fall, is the fact that Adam has suddenly totally saw humanity differently. As not, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but this is just a mother who can produce for me. All right, let's keep going. We are in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Here's the beautiful and loving mercy of God, that in the midst of their sin and shame, God clothes them. We enjoy dwelling on the banishment 
and the harshness of God in the story. However, I believe the climax of this story is God showing up, seeing their shame, and then choosing to make them close to show that he is right there with them, even in their struggle. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good from evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Again, the emphasis is on the good and evil part. God is not saying that they weren't like him before, rather that they have allowed themselves to take on more than they needed to be satisfied. It's not God saying they weren't like me before. Now that they've eaten of this, they're more like me. It's God saying they have eaten of what I told them not to. They chased after something more than what would satisfy them. And that has caused them harm. We can't allow them to even be in this place anymore where they have that tree here to make it worse. So anyway, we're going to come back to that part in a minute. Uh, Verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. God's response is to remove them from the garden so that they don't live forever, bounded by this added weight that they have taken on themselves by eating of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So what is the point in all of this? Why is this story so significant for us in our context? I really, really, really focus here. I'm going to sum this up. Here we have a tale of a good God who made a good creation He takes an image bearer, just like us, and places him in a garden of infinite devotion with him. In this garden, God highlights two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Earlier, we opened with the question of why God would place a cursed tree in this garden, and after reading this story, we can formulate the answer. But before we do this, think about this. One of the names that is used for God all throughout Scripture and in rabbinic tradition is the name El Shaddai. Western tradition has concluded that this name means God Almighty. However, in rabbinic tradition and in the Talmud and in a lot of Jewish scholars, we come to a different conclusion of this name. We see El rightly translated as God. Shaddai, however, does not mean Almighty. Shaddai is literally translated as He who said enough. So the name El Shaddai that we see throughout the Old Testament very frequently and is quite literally Yahweh, he who said enough. Being an image bearer or being like God is taking on that very same quality. How do we know this? Because we see God place Adam in a garden where he has everything he needs to be satisfied along with something that he does not need. This tree serves as a reminder that mankind is not a beast, but one who knows when to say enough. You see, a beast has no concept of saying enough when seeking satisfaction. If a hungry bear walks into this room, it doesn't stop to think, is this good for me to eat? Or should I consider the fact that I shouldn't operate this way? No. This beast will eat anything and everything, even if it means its own death in the process. Mankind is not a hungry bear or any beast for that matter. Mankind has the God-given ability to say, that's enough. I don't need this. 
after God places his image bearer in the garden and gives him the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he takes a piece of him and creates another, thus having perfect community both in heaven and on earth, perfect harmony between a good God and a good creation. In the midst of this, a beast comes to an image bearer and tries to convince her that she doesn't need to say enough, that rather she can eat anything because there's always more and more is always satisfying, and so she did. She gave into her desire and convinced her partner to do the same. This resulted in humanity constantly chasing its desires and more specifically, its flesh. We see throughout the entire New Testament, Paul and a few other apostles say things like, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Or for those who live according to the flesh, uh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but to those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. We even see Paul talk about things, uh, talk about what the things of the flesh are. He says to the, Galat- the Galatians, I say Galatians, Galatians. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, I'm not going to say that word with kids around, and things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Greek word, this is, oh, this is so good. The Greek word that's used for flesh is sarx. Through careful study, you see that this word could very well mean flesh. But many Eastern scholars suggest that a literal rendering of the word in this context could mean Animal appetite, or to put it in the language of this message, the appetite of the beast. So as I close, Isaiah, if you want to prepare, um, I want to leave some space here because I feel like God's really going to move here. This message is something that we should all begin to put to practice today. Almost every single day, things will come after us to try and convince us that we just partake of more, I'm sorry, that we partake of more than what we need to be satisfied. And that if we partake of these things, we will be somehow greater than we are now or more like God. But let me tell you with confidence, if you would just allow yourself to be fully his each and every day, that will satisfy you. You need nothing else. This life is meant to be enjoyed with and in God. There is nothing more you can do, nothing more you can say, nothing more you can experience that will gain more favor and love than he has for you now. So my challenge for you is to simply stop. You are not a beast. You are not a beast. You are not a beast. You are an image bearer of the El Shaddai. And like him, you are able to say, enough is enough. On Thursday, when I wrote this portion of the message, I felt the Lord give me a heavy, heavy burden that there are maybe some here today that have convinced themselves that they are a beast. What I mean by that is that you think that there's nothing I can do to stop, 
that whatever it is that I've that I found myself bound by, there's nothing I can do to stop. I just keep chasing these things. I keep allowing myself to fall into these mindsets. I keep allowing myself to, to do things that I shouldn't do, all this stuff. But I'm here to convince you that you are not a beast. You have the God-given ability to say enough is enough. You are a child of God. He takes you just as you are. You, don't, you, you are not subject to your chains anymore. It's not, it's, listen, being, we're not just sinners saved by grace. We're not just people who are like, oh, well, I'm saved, but every day I have to make sure that I do a little bit more so a little bit more of my chains fall off or a little bit more of my chains get let loosened from my hands. Like when you become his child, which was before the foundations of the earth, then those chains no longer, like those chains are a facade. They don't exist. Like what you feel like you're bound by is nothing more than you convincing yourself that you are a beast, that you don't have the ability to say enough is enough, but that you've convinced yourself that there's nothing I can do to get out of this. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. I just keep giving in to this instinct over and over and over again to get more and more and more and more. But you've been given the God given, like, like, listen, we can pray and pray and pray all we want to, but God has given you because of who you are, because you're an image bearer, you have the ability to say enough is enough. So to quote a song that we do here frequently, because I feel like there's some still not convinced. And I think that this will help a lot that you may think to yourself, like, listen, like Matt, you just have no idea what I'm going through. You just have no idea where I am. What I'm going through is a lot more than just saying, stop. But if you would just become convinced of how much he really cares for you and how much he really has set you free, then that, that mentality wouldn't even rise in you. It's you are free, you're free indeed. You're not a beast, so you are not subject to anything except being his and him being yours. That's it. So we sing, we sing this song frequently. It's, um, um, I am the one you love. But the chorus says, you take me just as I am you choose me all over again. I am the one you love. I don't have to prove anything because there's room at your table for me. I am the one you love. When we become convinced of that, then becoming, being the image bearer that we are becomes easier. When we realize who we are in him, it no longer becomes, man, I really hope I don't give in to my beast appetite today. I really hope I don't give in to the flesh today. But when you become fully his and him fully yours, it's, that's not even a thought anymore. It's like, I'm gonna pursue Jesus today and everything else that comes after me, like, what is this? Like, are you kidding me? It's like an ant trying to approach you and say, ah, I'm gonna take you down. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? You have the infinite, all expansive, all magnificent God of the universe living within you and his image is you. And because of that, you can say enough. So if we can bow our heads for a second, I really want the Lord to move in this moment. I feel him so heavily right now. I feel specifically that there may be at least two people that all, all you have been living in, all you've known is giving in to this beast appetite. 
that if I can if I can just do this and do this and do this, then I'll be okay. Or if I can stop doing this and stop doing this, then I'll be okay. But for some of you today, you need to be fully convinced that you are an image bearer of God and you can simply say enough is enough and live free indeed right now. But if you're in here today and, and, that's, and that's you and you say, Matt, I just, I feel like a beast. I feel like there's nothing I can do to get out of where I am, nothing I can do to break these chains, even though they're not real. There's nothing I can do to break out of this that I'm going through. If that's you, could you slip your hand up, please? Jesus, we worship you, the El Shaddai, the one who knows when to say enough, the one who placed mankind in a garden, not, to t- not for the purpose of seeing him fall, but to remind him that he is just like you. Lord, I come before you and I intercede for those in here who raise their hands. Lord, we as a church take on that burden and we say, Lord, that beast appetite, that flesh is no more. It has no place in the heart or the life of an image bearer because we are not a beast. We are not just some beast that trolls around and has to have our fill wherever we may find it. We are an image bearer of God and we know how to say enough. Convince us of that today, Lord. Convince us of that today, Lord. We are image bearers of God. We can trust you. Lord, you are so good. And I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that whatever it is that may be trying to infect the minds of the image bearers here today, to convince them that they are a beast, that that would be laid here at the altar that that would be burned, that that would meet the wrath of God today, that the wrath of God would consume anything that tries to convince these image bearers that they are a beast and that they have to give in to get more from you or they have to give in in order to please their appetite. We are not a beast. We are image bearers of God. And Lord, as image bearers, I declare for this body today that from this moment forward, not starting tomorrow, not starting when we leave here, right now, we will live free and we will live free indeed. That we now know when to say enough. That when the things of the enemy come against us, we say, that's enough. This stops right here. You have no place in my life, no place where I am. This is enough because I have everything I need in God. I don't need more. There's one thing that satisfies my spirit and that's him. One thing I desire, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of his face. That is what we desire. Anything else is rubbish. We want nothing else but you, Lord. And anything that tries to convince us that we need something more, that doesn't even have a place in our life anymore. That's gone. Lord, I thank you that there are some people free indeed today. Whether they raise their hands or not, Lord, I feel the freedom in this room. 
I feel the freedom that we no longer have to give in to our animal appetites. I feel it. I feel it. Free indeed. Free indeed. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And Lord, I declare over this body that no weapon formed against us will prosper. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Because we're yours. We're image bearers of God. We have the nature of God right here and right now. We don't need anything more. We don't need to read more. We don't need to pray more. We don't need to intercede more. We don't need to come to church more. But we have everything we need in ourselves now because we have you and you have created us. The divine DNA lives in and through us as image bearers of God. Free indeed, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom in this room. I'm telling you, I, listen, I don't know who this is. I, I feel the weight being lifted off your shoulders right now. It's almost like you had so much weight that you were doubled over having to carry all this weight, and now you can finally stand up straight. I feel it. I feel it. I feel the weight gone. It's not your weight to carry. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. If you feel burden, just take it off because you're not a beast. You need nothing more than him and his burden is light. I'm telling you, I, I feel it. I feel free indeed. I feel the free indeed in this room. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. And we praise you, Lord, that we are free indeed. And then from, I'm telling you, we are image bearers of God and we are going to shine in Columbia and we're gonna be known as those who are different than those around us because we are simply living as image bearers and not as beasts. That we're gonna walk into our contexts and our areas of work and our areas of school or wherever we may be and we're gonna know when to say enough and people are gonna look at us like, how are you doing this? How? And you simply say, this is who I am and this is who you are too. This is where revival begins, is when you begin to be convinced that you are not a beast, that you are not subject to the chains that you think you may have, that you're not subject to this mindset of more and more and more and more and more, but that you can be satisfied here and now. That's how we bring the gospel everywhere in Columbia, is that we bring it where we are. We're not waiting for God to do something else. We have everything we need now because we have him. Free indeed. Thank you, Jesus. We glorify you and I pray that you be with us this week. Don't let this just be another message that passes by, but let us live free indeed from now until the moment we take our last breath and even into eternity, that we live free indeed, free indeed, choosing you and choosing to be satisfied in you. You are the well that never runs dry. We drink of you, Lord, and we'll never thirst again. We're not choosing to be like a beast and drink from the well that we'll have to keep coming back to over and over and over again. But we're going to you, Jesus, and we are satisfied because we have the eternal water, the eternal breath of life living in and through us. God, you're so good. We thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray.